You have 13 hours in which to solve the labyrinth before your baby brother becomes one of us. You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children. And still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders. And under our beds. And in our closets. And together we'll realize, whoa, that's pretty dark. That's pretty dark. Buckingham yeah. <laughs> you know, if there were two oh things, my God. if there were two things I could lose uh, from any 80s movie, mm-hmm. well, just from the 80s, the whole decade in general. Okay. There you are two things d- I would d- lose. Get rid of, like don't exist on the planet. Like never existed, will never exist. The world is better off for it. Okay. Would be saxophone that is not jazz, like saxophone in, in any music that's not jazz. Oh, highly disagree. And Oh, highly disagree already. Lip syncing in movies. Mm. Mm, that's a tough one. That's I'd a tough one. I'd lose both of those things and we'd all be happier people. That is, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we're just setting ourselves up for some fun debates here on That's yeah, Pretty Dark. This is going to be so fun. <laughs> yeah, this is That's Pretty Dark. My name's Christian. I'm Kaylin. We're hanging out talking about labyrinth. And I hope, I do hope that you have listened to part one and you were just in that labyrinth space. Yeah. Because like we we talked about, the 80, there's just this... Okay, I do have to argue about your your saxophone thing because I like the saxophone <laughs> in general. Saxophone. I like I ha- sorry, I like the saxophone. <laughs> but I was just gonna say, I hope that you're all in this '80s synth, you know, David Bowie, Stranger Things. I hope that you've cranked the soundtrack all week. Hmm. Now that I've reminded you that it exists, and you're just I here hope you do too for this because we there's just so much to this movie that it couldn't exist in one singular episode. There's so much to break down, and I'm so excited to do it. Because like I talked about in the last episode, the coming of age factor in this movie, it sounds so simple when you say the words coming of age. It's never easy. But when you watch this movie as a very young person, you know, I was three, four, five when I was first watching this. Wow, that's young. I know. (laughs) I know. But I continue to watch it throughout (laughs) my childhood. And when you're in the coming of age, you don't know that you are. And that's just simply true for all of these types of films. Right. But they are, for me, really beautiful and poignant to look back at. And I'm excited that Labyrinth has kind of joined those ranks for me, finally. Yeah, totally. Because I, I didn't get those, I didn't get there with it until, you know, until now. Until now. But I still want to know, how is a baby like a goblin? And how is a goblin like a baby? How does it remind him of the baby? <laughs> and also, you still don't know. how does a baby have the power of voodoo it, it the the questions of life How does a babe have the power these are the ponderings and yeah. i i do have some answers for you but i don't think they're going to be the answers that you expect sometimes a raven is like a writing desk and sometimes a goblin is like a baby and sometimes a goblin steals a baby <sighs> so before we even get into the plot of the film lore wise it seems to be implied in this movie and I didn't know this as a kid okay <laughs> i didn't get it anyway hit me but it seems to be implied that all of the goblins in Jareth's realm and under his power were once babies that he stole. Right. See, as a kid, nope, I didn't get there. I thought the goblins were goblins and the people were people. That's why I want to know, why is he confusedly being like, you remind me of the babe? (laughs) 
<laughs> because you think it's you should like, already know. No shit. The baby has the power to be a goblin. You turned the baby into the goblin. Right. Because that's what she says, right? Yeah. Like when she's trying to speak her goblin war, that her, yeah. her gobbledygook. Oh, yeah. But the girl knew that the king of the goblins would keep the baby in his castle forever and ever and ever and turn it into a goblin. So I understand that the threat is to turn Toby into a goblin. Right. But baby Kaylin Brain did not take the extra step to realize that all of these goblins uh-huh. were once potentially babies that caregivers just failed to save. Yeah. And when you think about it, that's haunting. Isn't that kind of awful? <laughs> like, damn. But it, I just, I don't know. And at the end of the day, that's potentially the darkest aspect of this film. Because that's the part that never gets resolved. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. Well, here we are. Here we are. Here we are. This is the labyrinth. Here we go. So, last time we talked about the cast, the crew, the mm-hmm. production, the history, all the facts and figures, and I read to you a lot. David Bowie's package. And yeah, David Bowie's package was an important uh, point in our first episode. So do go back uh, and listen to Emphasis that. on the point. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Yes. <laughs> emphasis on the package, because it's, it's back in part one. But I'm sure it will come up again. Just like David Bowie's package. <laughs> I knew I was wait. I honestly, I thought you would make that joke last time. Listen. So Listen. I'm not going to go beat for beat on the plot. And I may spoil some things, but I'm going to try to keep it high level. But I'm going to share some observations and reflections. And I want you, listener, to go and watch this movie again. If you have seen it in your lifetime, go watch it as an adult and tell us how it makes you feel now. Let's do this thing. So right off the bat. I'm going to talk about the owl in the opening credits. My literal first note. What's the owl significance? Yeah. Yes. Tell me everything. Oh, heck yeah. Okay. So I've seen Twin Peaks. (laughs) The owl in the opening credit sequence is computer animated. Yes. And is supposedly, allegedly, the first attempt at a photorealistic CGI animal character in a feature film. Ever? Ever. Huh. And guess who animated this owl? I don't, you know, it's not Steven Spielberg and it's not, not Tim Burton. No. So I don't know. None other than Bill Croyer, director of Fern Gully. Holy who shit. Who we have just talked about on this podcast. Bill Croyer animated this owl for the title sequence of Labyrinth. Okay. I loved that connection. I should have actually should have been able to guess that. Uh, yeah, you <laughs> should have. We talked about him animating title sequences, so. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I gave well, you everything and served it to you on a silver platter, but that's I okay. I told you I have no thoughts in my, in my, my <laughs> mind this week. No, no brain thoughts this week. <laughs> so beyond just being significant for the fact that it was animated by another famous 90s, 80s mm, legend. The web of life. It's all coming together. The web of life. It's all connecting. But the owl is also seemingly Jareth in his disguise. Okay. And owl lore, it, we can get into a whole new rabbit hole, no pun intended, diving into owl lore. Yeah, So there are a lot of cultures that see owls as good, holding powers mm-hmm. of wisdom and prophecy and foretelling. And then there are others, probably the majority actually, including Middle Age and British folklore, yeah. that see owls, especially barn owls like this one, yeah. as sinister or representing impending death. Wow. Many early Asian cultures associate owls with being eaters of children or mothers. (laughs) (laughs) And in Eastern Europe, they were thought to be departed souls. Yeah, yeah. So basically... That I knew. A bird of darkness. It's a bird that's nocturnal, right? Yeah. And the night was associated with death. Ooh, the nightly neighbors coming at you. (laughs) Oh, true, true. Oh, shoot. (laughs) 
all the nocturnal vibes. So there was one commentary that I was reading that pointed out that in Wales, a very early legend said that an owl could be heard near the house when an unmarried woman lost her virginity. Oh, and damn, I kind of like that so they heavy. chose this. It's so heavy, and it's not to say that you know anything happens to Sarah like that, but the coming of age idea. Right. It all is so intertwined, and it really impressed me when I read through the you know the lore about an owl. Not for lack of trying. Um, also, P.S. Virginity is a social construct. It doesn't exist. Not a thing. You have value beyond your quote unquote virginity. It's stupid. BT dubs, everybody. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> the film opens with Sarah, our main character, getting caught in a thunderstorm, further lending to my childhood fascination and obsession with thunderstorms. Just like Page Master. Me too. I loved this whole opening. Everything. It's beautiful. It really is. It's so is. beautiful. It gave me. Um, she's in a park. Such nostalgic. She's vibes. reciting like practicing lines for a play, a fictional play, The Labyrinth, and these lines will come back to be very important later in the film. I have a question about that. Yes. Is it a play that she is rehearsing for, or a play that she's writing for herself? It seems to be something that exists already. It does seem. I, I looked up to see if this was based off of anything, and it's not. Me too. But it's not. I was like, what is this? I think it's I think that that's a very interesting point that you bring up, though, because I think it straddles that line again. It's, it's never the answered. idea. Right. It isn't ever answered. And as we will talk about, as you hinted at in part one, she's creating a fantasy world around herself for several reasons. Yeah. Many, many reasons that we yeah, will discuss. We'll get into. Yeah. It could be that she's creating a play, but it seems to be a work of fiction that exists it's hard to say. It's hard to it's say. It's like it's separating your thoughts from your- As impossible as it sounds, it seems like something that's writing itself outside of her. As it's happening. Yeah. But like- Which I think is so She's cool. influencing it and inspiring it on the page like a Tom Riddle's diary sort yeah, of situation. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Mm -hmm. Where it's writing itself. And as she kind of lives her life and learns her lines, mm -hmm. the next beat, the next Reveals scene itself. description, the next line of dialogue yeah. is revealed on the page for I her. I think that's a cool theory. But I will say that some of the keys to what she needs to know and remember and understand are kind of already present for her in that text. Right. So maybe it's, you know, I don't it know. It comes full circle at the end. Right. Of course. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. Mm, we'll get there. Man. But it's a beautiful opening sequence. She's with her dog Merlin in the park. Merlin. And... The, the rain starts to pour and she's running back to her house. And it's just this quintessential, like, be home before the streetlights come on mm -hmm. sort of feeling. She knows she's late because she's supposed to babysit her half-brother. And she returns home. Yeah. I was also struck right away by the casual dams and hells all oh over the place. Oh, my God. So right 80s away. in the language, I know. It's a very, it's just PG. like uh, Goonies, right? So it's, it's very Goonies. It's a kid's movie, but they're really casual with their language. And I feel like... I don't know if it was just before like dang and darn were really like mainstream. I don't know. I mean, I feel like darn was around, but no, darn tootin's always been around. <laughs> yeah. But I, I prefer the casual nature of the language same. versus like, that's a different conversation. That's a lot of what we talk about yeah. in general, things that we grew up with such stigma around. It gave them power. Losing your virginity. <laughs> yeah. A plus. Amen. Drinking alcohol. Oh my God. All of the above. Now I'm just ranting. <laughs> so 
yeah, these casual damn tells. One of the first things Sarah says, she forgets her line and she says, damn. Mm-hmm. And in the song that begins playing, which I freaking love, I'm, Christian yeah. doesn't like it. We've learned in part no, no, one, no, no. Christian it's, does not. We're going to move past that, but oh, he man. says it hurts like hell. Don't tell me truth hurts, little girl, because it hurts like hell. And that's in the opening credits. <laughs> like, yes. You haven't even seen and anything yet. As a kid, it pretty much went over my head. And I assume it went over the heads of the adults that were letting me watch this movie because Probably. they themselves to this day don't say those words. So, yeah, you know, just interesting that I thought it was so casual. And they weren't they weren't really considered taboo in the 80s, just like like we talked about with the Goonies. And speaking of dams, Ooh. Sarah is so damn mean. <laughs> she is so pissed this She's entire so intro. Oh, oh my man. God. So, okay. <laughs> it did strike me as an adult watching it back. I was like, it was a bit holy cow. Like, she's having a time. Wow. She's real angsty. Like, she's playing that she up. She has her reasons. Exactly. But. She has her reasons. So, in again, I was really surprised by this attitude that she had. Yeah. And it seemed to me, as an adult rewatching it with, you know, my own understanding and biases and whatever it seemed to me like her dad and her stepmom were relatively reasonable to her yeah a little bit stilted but reasonable i felt kind of bad for them if you had plans we wouldn't have asked you to babysit right exactly if you had plans but she's like us and we don't make plans well there's that but uh even even we'll take it one step further so obviously i think she's feeling dismissed she's feeling unseen and unheard which is a theme that we see coming back over and over again right and it's tough being a kid she's also been made subject to her her family like her dad and her mom's we will learn yep romantic choices and she has really had no autonomy in her life thus far so she's kind of just having to fall in line with the choices that other people make right and that will make anyone upset including me. <laughs> yep. Um, that is that is one of the reasons, I think, why there is so much angst amongst the teens. And it isn't entirely unwarranted. Right. Also, her plans, quote unquote, may not line up with her stepmother's idea of what constitutes plans. Um, it feels to me like the subtext in the scene is saying that her stepmother says that she should have a date or she expects her to have a date. Right. And I think that is honestly the catalyst that makes Sarah that much more angry and upset. Well, how do you know? You don't know what my plans are. You don't even ask me anymore. Well, I assume you'd tell me if you had a date. I'd like it if you had a date. You, you should have dates at your age. Uh, and sure. this frustrates Sarah even more because it's that that classic, like, you don't want to talk about that with your mom or stepmom. Right. No adult ever. No. Yeah. And that's uncomfortable. And she feels like she's being pushed to something that she's not interested in. She would rather be in the park with Merlin right. and her play. You know, like that's that's her idea of plans. But her idea of plans isn't respected right. by the adults because they're so far out of that. They're so far removed. That's true. Her her plan was to go rehearse her play in the park right. with her dog. That was plans. And this is like an edge of misogyny that I think was on purpose, but it's like the idea that her plans aren't respected unless she's going to do the right. societal expected thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So honestly, a lot to, to uncover, like a lot of layers to this. That's true. That while it, yeah. you know, surprised me at first, really made sense the more that I looked at it. Yeah. And I also have to mention here that we need to consider the fact that the screenplay was mostly written by a middle-aged man. 
Yeah. So we can take all the things I said before into consideration, but also we have to consider, is the writing being dismissive in and of itself? Like, was this his perception of a young, spoiled teenage girl? Well, it was rewritten by a few other middle-aged men, so it's hard to say. There was a female in the mix, but yeah, for the most yeah. part, it was men that were writing this Hopefully this there was a lot of consultation going I on. I hope so. And the, again, the more that I think about it, the more it makes sense. But she was directed to be very... Yeah. Oh, to show a lot of emotion in these scenes. Right. At the very beginning. Right. Buzz is yelling. Buzz says hello. What's <laughs> up, so Buzz? So at this point, she is left. Her parents are going out, and she's left to babysit her brother, and her brother won't stop crying, and she starts waxing poetic. What do you want? You want a story? Again, this fantasy language, this world that okay. she's creating and living in on her own. Once upon a time. And she's spinning this fairy tale for herself in which Toby is taken from her to live with the goblins. And this is reminiscent of a lot of fairy lore because there's always the the baby is stolen or replaced with a changeling like lore. Right. The podcast talks a lot about changelings right. in fairy lore, like mischievous, you know, you're stealing young children. There is a lot of fairy lore that talks about stealing humans to to grow your sect or your group or the good folk or whatever mm -hmm. as a fairy. Like there's a lot of factions or whatever in folklore. Right. And right. they don't reproduce very often. And so they have to take from the humans or something. Um, so th there's a lot of like layers again of also a folklore going on here. Yeah, because goblins and are just considered really, really ugly fairies. True. Mm -hmm. They're just like grotesque fae. Essentially fae, fae. covers yeah. fae people. a broad spectrum of supernatural creatures that are just not human yes. that have some sort of power or some mm -hmm. uh, mystique or mysticism about them and goblins are just part of the fae exactly it, and it's it's interesting the relationship between the idea of a goblin and fairy in this this film and the way that they pull from very very ancient folklore and also yeah. kind of modernize it as well right super cool but we're, we'll get into all of it super cool supernatural so so sarah's making these declarations or proclamations about how she wants the world to be. Yeah. And I get the impulse of her doing this because she's angry. She has all these feelings at her parents. And also it's harmless for her. She's just angry. It, sure. She feels like she's in control. She feels like she's in control of it. She's going to be a writer is what she's going to do. Yeah. She's, she's really, um, the threads that she's spinning, she's using for her expression. Right. Essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also think that me, Kaylin, watching this as a kid, I really got hit hard with this fairy tale esque uh, moral of the story be careful what you wish for thing. Yeah, monkey's paw. Because it is a very common theme in folklore and in Aesop and all of these like fables that we teach to children sure. to make sure that they stay on the straight and narrow or whatever we expect of children. That was cemented in my mind really early. So when that mixed with my OCD and anxiety, <laughs> I was always very careful <laughs> to rein in my anger. I was not like an outwardly angry person ever in my life, really, but especially as a kid, because I was, I was so focused on making sure I didn't say or do things that I would regret yeah. if something bad happened, if I, if I somehow caused something bad to happen. I know you relate to that. We've talked about that in other episodes as well. Mm -hmm. But I thought if I had that power, if words had that power, like I saw in Labyrinth and other stories, <laughs> I needed to really keep a close, you know, very tight grip on my words and my thoughts and my actions, which yeah. led to good and bad things i will say in my life i think i uh i lost that along the way somewhere <laughs> those breadcrumbs got eaten by crows i'll tell you that much fair enough i mean and that that's okay but 
I, I think this movie had a lot to do with it sticking around for me. They are important lessons. And it's a stressful way to live, I won't lie. But the whole idea of the goblin saying, wanting her to get the right wish <laughs> yeah. or, or the right incantation almost. Yeah. And as Sarah is narrating to Toby, really telling him a story. Yeah. She's narrating to him that the goblins say, say your right words. Say your right words, the goblins said. And that becomes a theme in both good and bad ways yeah. throughout this film. Say your right words. But for little baby Kaylin, if all it takes is to say your right words, I better get them right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my stress. It seems a lot like you only have one chance to really get it right, too. Exactly. The stakes mm -hmm. are always because, pretty high. Because the, the stakes are high, and if you make one mistake, look what it can cause. Yep. Look at the destruction that can come from this one slip-up or one mistake. And that was reinforced in me through religion, yep. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. To the nth degree. There's a reason why this permeates so many different factions of our like culture and our upbringing and our society. Like, yep, <laughs> this is not Goes anything deep. new. This has existed for no. This is tale as old as time. Tale. I'm talking as old as time. A long ass time. <laughs> I also had to laugh at some of the early scenes because these people have this huge house that's like beautiful, and they put the baby's crib in the guest room. Like, yeah, it doesn't make any it, sense. Maybe people just didn't have nurseries. They didn't like seen and not heard. This is coming out of the seen and not heard era of. They did feel very cold and distant. Like they're not raising their children. Like it felt like there should have been a nanny in the house. Yeah. But there wasn't. Yeah, true. The dad seemed like like he was doing what he could, but you know. He didn't know what he was doing. He can only do so his, much. <laughs> his answer is, I'll talk to her. And he goes up and talks to her through the door. Through the door. Yeah. And then she even says that. She gets upset and she's like, you really wanted to talk to me, didn't you? Really? You tried to break down the door. Yeah, he's like, like very baby's sarcastic. fed and put to bed and I'm leaving. we're going to be out till midnight. So see you later, sweetheart. Mm -hmm. Listen, if you want to call the Goblin King to come and get your little brother for a little while, that's fine. Have fun. Do, do what you will. <laughs> so yeah, at this point, Sarah is so deep in like her fantasies and fiction and this world that she's building for herself. And she does successfully make a wish that the Goblin King will take her little brother away. Mm -hmm. I have to note as well, we hear from the goblins a couple times. They're cutting in and out through this because she kind of summons them or, or awakens them or something in their realm based on what she's saying. My takeaway was that they're inside of a mirror somewhere on another plane of existence. And she she's brought attention to herself. And they are paying close attention to her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did. I, I was confused because at first she says, I, I, she makes a wish. She says a wish. And they're like, that's not it. And they, <laughs> they talk about that. They should get it wrong. Start with this I is, wish. This is the Monty Python. It doesn't even start with I wish is what the goblins say. It's perfect. Yeah. And then she makes a wish also starting with I wish. And somehow this one's the right one. But he said, the goblin said, it doesn't start with I wish. No. So was that a goof? No, I, I turned the captions on to make sure. Yeah. He was referencing what she said. He said, that doesn't even start with I wish. And so he was saying, what you asked us to do oh, has to start I, with I wish. It has I to wish. start with I wish. Understood. Okay. Some of the uh, enunciation was a bit off because well, they're, they were they're goblins. voicing goblins. So it's not <laughs> like it's that easy. Fair yeah. enough. No, I but appreciate the effort. I caught that too, so I went back and double-checked. Okay. I feel better that you also were tripped up by it. Oh, I gotcha. Good times. <laughs> Great oldies. So then this owl ominously appears at the window, a barn owl. Yep. And in, of course, Toby's gone now. And I mean, okay, I will also say that scared the shit out of me as a kid. The owl? When Toby's crying. No, well, Toby's crying, 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 and then she wishes this and he stops. I wish the goblins would come and take you away. 
right now. Oh, when she says that and then leaves the room and he stops crying. Yeah. She walks like out that? of the room and Toby stops crying. And it's that chilled me to the bone as a kid because it was like, you know, she just did something. The entire mood shifted. Yep. They did. A, they did it well. Yeah. If, if it wasn't so campy and so silly, that would have been a very moment. sickening moment. Yes. In any movie. And it still was, I think. It kind of was. But I was, yeah, I was getting ahead of myself with y'all. Had to point that out because that moment just, oof, oof. right? In the, I'm with you. I'm with you. So again, this owl appears and then in a confusing burst of glitter. <laughs> so there's so much meet. glitter in this movie. There is. I'm going to. And it's all I said David Bowie. Thing. I know it's David Bowie. I said the same thing in my notes. Just blue glitter everywhere. I don't everywhere. remember there being this much glitter, but there is so much. Like, how did people ever, like, when they left set, they just were covered in glitter all the time. They had to be. They had to have been covered in glitter. It's, it's insane. The amount of glitter that they used. I wish that they had like a pound amount. I think David Bowie came to set. Just opened his package. <laughs> he was just like. <laughs> <laughs> He's gesturing from his, from his uh, yeah, genital region. So <laughs> we meet Handsome and Aloof, Jareth, the Goblin King. Yeah. And he tells her that he has taken Toby away as she wished. And she has 13 hours to solve his labyrinth, find his castle, and save her brother. Lucky number 13. And this is, of course, a lot of responsibility to place on a kid, but that's kind of the entire point. Look, she did this to herself. She did it to herself, <laughs> right. but she also steps up to the plate because she knows she did it to herself, and she knows she's responsible for fixing this mistake. Right. And I know grown adults that don't act like that. Yeah. So props to Sarah because... And I, there was another commentary or something that I, I was reading or watching, and they basically talked about how Sarah, a lot of times in films like this, the point is to emphasize responsibility or to go through it and teach responsibility. But for Sarah, she really accepted the responsibility of her actions immediately. Yeah, right she kind of did. Bat. It wasn't something that had to be taught to her. She was like, I did not mean that. Yeah. I was upset. Mm -hmm. And... I have to get this kid back. And I, it, there's so many directions we could take this, y'all. But one thing that I thought about was like in a female protagonist, which we mentioned this on la the last episode, but this is one of very, very few coming of age films with a female protagonist. Yep. And is it the whole idea that girls mature faster than boys, but boys will be boys, but girls have this innate responsibility about them, et cetera. Like yeah, how much girls was are forced on that? to grow up faster. How much was it more so that they just weren't looking to make that point with the film? They weren't looking to, to make that the goal and they had other points to make. You know, I'm, I'm just not sure. I don't know. Right. It's hard to say. But it's also true. It's also a film that doesn't revolve around becoming popular or winning the affections of a man, technically. Mm -hmm. It's all so intertwined that it's hard to separate it out, which I think is kind of how life is sometimes. Sure. No, that life is messy and hard to figure out. Exactly. As is Labyrinth. I think this is pretty realistic comparatively. So I also, as a kid, wanted so badly to have one of the crystals that Jareth is playing with. I just wanted one. <laughs> it was mesmerizing to watch the way that he was juggling them and had them in his hands, like that dexterity. And it was, right. I mean, I liked magicians and everything to do with that as a kid too. Yeah. It was, it was just the coolest thing that I'd ever seen. And watching it back, I was kind of laughing because a lot of the shots are really strategically over the shoulder mm -hmm. <laughs> on purpose. And I learned that the choreographer, Michael Moshin, he was an accomplished juggler and he's the one that was performing the tricks. I and knew in a that. lot of the shots, he was crouched behind David Bowie with his arms replacing David Bowie, whose line is it anyway style. 
But what's interesting about it as well is that he was doing this completely blind. He didn't have a monitor. Like a lot of the puppetry and puppets that on all of Jim Henson's projects would have a monitor where they could see their performance. Yeah. He he didn't have one. He had to fly blind and and do his juggling. Wow. And in the documentary, I mentioned it in the last episode, it's called Into the Labyrinth. It's a feature on some of the later releases of the DVD highly recommend going to watch it because you can see him practicing he practices like laying on the floor and like rotating the <laughs> crystals in his hands and it's it's really crazy that's cool yeah i thought that was i thought that was fun and i mean obviously they're they were limited to some degree but but i think there are a couple moments in this film where they really sell it and it looks like it's jared's hand yeah and it does again yeah. i will continue to say this throughout discussing labyrinth but practical effects are magical <laughs> they are so magical they really are and they're underrated i think i'm thinking of the when he throws the snake at her yeah and yes. then it falls to the floor and the whole thing with the yeah. little goblin I have, kid i have a, that one blew my mind still it, it, to this day. I honestly i was like thinking i'm gonna figure this out <laughs> and i couldn't <laughs> yeah just, I, could, I didn't i didn't read it's about magic. that one it's magic i wish i could tell you but it is magic on the whole i think it's so it's such magic absolute magic I also want to point out that this 13-hour time frame has a lot of like folklore significance as well. 13. Uh, Sarah made her wish around midnight, which is considered a powerful time in the spiritual realm where there are demons and goblins and malevolent creatures can cross dimensions and right. enter the earthly realm. There's always the best this... ghost stories begin at midnight. Exactly. And according to folklore, there's also like a time rift between midnight and one o'clock, which is like the 13th hour. Right. So for this this whole sequence to be spurred, basically, something jarring and horrible has to happen to open this portal or to open this dimension. And in this case, that was Sarah's wish. Right. And right. so you also see a clock later that Jareth references and it has 13 hours on it. So yeah. it was all meant to be symbolic of this idea that the veil was thin at this time. Ooh, the veil was thin. So from here, Sarah is transported to Jareth's labyrinth outside of Goblin City, a castle, uh, very reminiscent of the Wizard of Oz oh, as well, totally. which we see in her room earlier. Totally. We're going to talk all about her room. I'm going to get there. It's going to be epic. Just you wait. Hell yeah. But she meets a dwarf called Hoggle, who is exterminating fairies outside of the wall. <laughs> because they bite. Which, who, but yeah, because they bite and they're mean little suckers. Well, mosquitoes. But, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I that's It's still jarring because he's killing them, you know? It's like bugs, but you see them seven. as fairies, as people-looking creatures. Sixty. Um, yeah, he's counting as he but goes. But I did appreciate talk, speaking of the like play on words and like how how language itself is a character in this movie. Mm -hmm. One of the first real instances is when she's like, "It doesn't look very far." Oh yeah, and he says it's further than you think or whatever. Yes. I'm like, oh okay, that's pretty profound. <laughs> I it always that. is. It always is further than you think. I love little moments like that. And and this movie is full, full of, them. of them. Yeah. Full of them. Very well written. I like the script. I do too. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. We've, we got to your opinion <laughs> and you like it. This is it. This I is was my worried <laughs> again. I was worried whether you would. This is so my I'm glad that you professional do. opinion. So in, in this, you know, she's going into the labyrinth. Again, I'm noticing the glitter. It's painted on the branches. It's Everywhere. on the walls. I think it gave a really cool effect and I like it. Yeah. But oh my God, nightmare to like have to, to do it, to act in it. I feel like that just... I hope it was there was a lot of glue and it was just staying put. I'm I hoping hope. everything was like resined into like a hard seal. Yeah. And there was glitter yeah, like in that. the resin. And I was also 
again, with the practical effects, I was so, so fascinated by the wall that you could walk through. I still don't really know how they did it. It is, it looks, I, I used to, I remember being a kid and going up to the VHS player and rewinding the tape. And trying to, to watch see. watch walk through the wall multiple times to try and understand how it happened because it was so seamlessly built. They do two different angles. Well, three actually. Yeah. And each one sells a level of believability. Mm-hmm. And your brain accepts it because what else are you going to do? Visually, yeah. You don't see everything you look at. Your brain fills in all the available space. Just like a Disney attraction. Just like a Disney attraction. Exactly. <laughs> Please fill in all, all available, available space. space. But yeah. That was one practical effect that I loved as a kid. And I still, it's still really cool to watch now. Yeah. No, it's very, very cool. But as Sarah's exploring, she's meeting several creatures and characters and hmm. several of th- the same theme really keeps popping up. Nothing is what it seems. Yes. They say it overtly as well. Yep. And she's figuring out that she needs to shift her perspective and stop taking things for granted. Yep. And as in the case of the worm, when the worm tells her which way to go, and then <laughs> as she leaves, he says, oh, I'm glad she didn't go to the left or she would have ended up at that castle. She would have gone like, straight to that castle. Straight to that castle. You know what? I want to go in for a cup of tea and meet the missus. Oh, I do too. Me too. I he invite the little worm. Want that? Invites her. So have bad. a cup of meet, meet the missus. <laughs> I love that little. So I love cute. that little worm. I love that little guy. But like in that case, I think that this movie also really beautifully portrays the fact that sometimes the wrong choice is actually the right one because of the lessons that you learn and the friends that you make along the way. Very well put. Oh my god. Just... I think. It's just true. Oh. It's true. And if she had gone to the left, she wouldn't have had the friends and the means she wouldn't have in her own anything. mind and, and heart to even defeat Jareth. So all in all, it was the right way, even though it at first seemed like the wrong way. I thought I internalized this as a kid. <laughs> I thought I got it. I thought it clicked. I really thought that was like made sense to me. Right. But it actually took a really long time to hit me. And it was complete foreshadowing for my life and Mm -hmm. most people's, I think. Nothing ever goes the way that you think it will. And a lot of times you make mistakes that turn out to be the best thing that you've ever done. No, absolutely. All of my mistakes led me here to this moment. Exactly. Right here, right now. And that's just like the end of Page Master when he was like, sure, I could have carried you to the end, but what what would you have learned along the way? Mm Mm-hmm. It's all about the journey. It's all about the learning and the growth. Yes. We mentioned in part one that a labyrinth in a spiritual way is often meant to represent a transformative experience, a pilgrimage, looking at yourself. Yeah. And that's going to carry us through, all the way through. Every time. That is the adventure narrative. And speaking of which, the deceptive nature of appearances is a really prominent aspect of fairy tale and folklore in general. Sarah's learning very quickly that the nice-looking fairies, they're mean and they bite. (laughs) And the really unattractive dwarf Hoggle is, you know, becoming her friend, Mm -hmm. as well as we'll get to him soon. But Ludo, Ludo. he's this scary beast, but he's helpful and kind. And he's kind and sweet, and he thinks she's a friend. Exactly. Appearances are not what they seem. But I will point out also something interesting that I had always noticed, but didn't, it didn't click the significance. On the back of Hoggle's vest mm-hmm. is a face sticking out its tongue. Really? And it's meant to represent the fact that Hoggle is two-faced. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes there are little clues. You know, I never looked at his clothes. <laughs> That's wild. Should have, Yeah, should have paid attention. And same thing with the Goblin King. This handsome, clean, suave, charming exactly. guy. Exactly. It's pure evil. They're, well, is he pure well, evil, though? 
We're not sure. He was playing a role just like they all are. <laughs> Indeed. So at this point, we have to go in for a second and talk about magic dance <laughs> or dance magic as all of them, including Bowie, referred to it as on the documentary, which made me laugh because they kept calling it dance magic, dance magic. And I was like, yeah, magic dance magic. Because <laughs> listen, yeah. listen, if, if the way, worm tells you to go to the right because you can't go to the left or you would go straight to the castle, mm-hmm. you'd miss the baby. Mm-hmm. And if you miss the baby, you can't slap it. True. And we got to slap the baby. We're here That's to slap important. the baby. <laughs> You've been waiting for this for two episodes. It's the only reason why I'm here. <laughs> Magic dance will never, ever not be a bop. I will never I will never turn it off if I hear it. I will always stop and listen to it. I love this song so much. I loved it as a kid. It gets stuck in my head all the time. I have this shirt on, like I said, and every time I wear this shirt, I sing it in my head on a loop. All of its 80s synth glory. Freaking music video. It's so great. The music video is great, too. It's a little bit different, but still great. And according to Brian Henson, Jim Henson's uh, son, who was the puppetry coordinator, the scene required over 48 puppets, 52 puppeteers, Mm -hmm. and eight people in goblin costumes. And during the scene, they were all moderately concerned that the set that they had built would be destroyed by the weight of all of the performers that were on the set. (laughs) Jeez. It was apparently pretty precarious. And you can tell, like, in the scene, it's meant to feel full. And he has this There's whole a lot going on. cohort of all these goblins, you know, that are at his, to do his bidding. He's the goblin king. Right. Are you ready for an answer to a question you've been asking for two episodes? Oh, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> goblins so, and babies. The dialogue, the famous dialogue from this movie that everybody quotes and knows, starting with the phrase, you remind me of the babe. Mm-hmm. It's apparently... A direct reference to an exchange between Cary Grant and Shirley Temple in the 1947 film The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. You sandbagging motherfucker. <laughs> you knew the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had the answer. So what's the original context? So you can actually look it up on YouTube if you want. The clip is from that film and it, the clip is titled You Remind Me of a Man because that was the original way that the joke played a man yeah in the movie carrie grant's character is going in to meet this woman that he's supposed to go on a date with hmm. and i haven't seen the whole movie full disclosure i haven't i've only seen this one clip uh, i think sh- he falls in love with this girl's sister or something so he's trying to get out of dating her huh. but he goes up to the house and there's a dude sitting outside the house and basically saying that he got put through the ringer and it's not worth it to date this girl. And they they don't know what humor is and they're like really uptight, essentially. <laughs> and so he, Cary Grant's character, does not want to date this girl. So he goes into the house and just tries to act super goofy and very unlikable because apparently that's what no. they disliked about the previous guy. Gotcha. And so whenever Shirley Temple's character gets up and goes to greet him in the threshold, he says something... He says, you remind me of a man. You remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What power? The power of hoodoo. Hoodoo? You do. Do what? Remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. Good morning. Hmm? Greetings, greetings. (laughs) So they do that looping joke So it's like a direct quote of this older Pretty much a direct quote, except now it's, you remind me of the babe. The babe. And he does it in the scene again to her grandfather. And then as they are exiting the scene, two of the other characters do it to each other. So it's like he gets them caught in this looping (laughs) joke. Gotcha. So it makes a lot more sense now. Well, that changes everything. Doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) You don't hate it anymore? (laughs) No, I mean, no, now it makes way more sense. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's good. I'm glad we could solve this mystery for everyone listening. Wow, but you it's heard pretty it funny here too first, folks. <laughs> if you look it up, like look up the clip, a lot of the comments on the YouTube video are talking about Labyrinth and how it carried through. And now our generation quotes it from Labyrinth. Right, right. Whereas a lot of the people in the comments were saying that their parents would quote that to them and they didn't even know where it came from. And it came hmm. from this movie in 1947. Well, how about that? How about that? Looping jokes, dude. Looping jokes. You remind me of the man. What man? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's kind of like my baddie. Uh, only fools are positive. Are you sure positive? I can't start it without finishing it. <laughs> I just have a chip on my shoulder because when I first tried to watch this as a grown man with mm-hmm. no no like context, just people literally saying, hey, Labyrinth is good. Watch that. <laughs> so I put it on one day. And I got to the you do, who do, voodoo, baby, power, baby, babe, whatever. <laughs> and I turned it off <laughs> because I was like, okay, oh this God. is not for me. But now <laughs> As I- As a kid, I, oh, I was all about it. I now I know the it. difference. I'm glad that you know. Now I know the difference. I'm glad that you have the power. And now I know I can fast forward through, you know, David Bowie music videos <sighs> with goblins and babies. No, you can't. You have to watch them. Well, I did it today. Required reading. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> so we we meet other creatures. Um, yeah. The four dudes at the door we talked about before that oh reminded God. you of playing cards, which I thought was a really cool yes. analogy because they totally do. Their names are apparently Ralph, Alf, Jim, and Tim. <laughs> this riddle has been with me since I was a wee lad. Yes. This riddle is a very common riddle. It's my favorite It frustrated riddle. me a lot as a kid. Me too. And I wanted to understand it as a kid so badly, but I never, I could never get there. Yeah. I couldn't make those synapses synapse. I, I logically think through this riddle every year and a half. <laughs> it just comes back around. It comes back to me and I go, wait, what was that? This is how the logic works, bro. It, it's tough. It's tough even still. But it's it makes for a really entertaining scene. Yeah. No, Absolutely. It, it's a great riddle. And I'm jealous because I wanted to work this riddle into something. Well, they but did it. then I find out it's been around for, what, 30, 40 years now? So uh-huh. it's many, already been done. Many have done it. It's already been but done. It's okay. Maybe you can work a version in. But kids don't know this riddle, so I can, exactly. I can work it into something. Making children's literature and children's content, you have an endless... Supply of new audiences. It never goes out of vogue because kids will always have to grow up. That's coming of age in a nutshell. Never gets old. Okay. so Except the kids do eventually. She chooses the wrong door, maybe the right door, we don't know, but she falls down this <laughs> latex gloves, hands <laughs> groping. It's just a blur. Uh, hundreds of performers. Well, it's, it's referred to as... The shaft of hands. Okay, the shaft. And there's the also the wall of helping hands. There, there's a brief moment in the documentary or the featurette mm-hmm. where um, Jim Henson is making faces with his hands with a, with another, I don't know if it's Frank or, or Brian, but he's working. Some poor intern. <laughs> yeah, and he's like working his hands with another person. <laughs> yeah. I'm demonstrating right now what he was doing. Look at that. With my hands, but he's putting, like he's having people like put their hands together so they can figure out what kind of shapes they can make and how they can make talking. Yeah. eyeballs and everything. I googled hands making faces. There's some cool stuff out there. Yeah. I mean, full (laughs) human skull looking stuff out there. Yeah. It's cool. Crazy. But man, it was so familiar visually. Yeah. To me. You don't forget something like that when you see it. (laughs) No, it's pretty, uh, pretty jarring, but cool scene. I mean, that deserves to be recreated in something if mm-hmm. it hasn't been. Like, that is cool. It's a cool effect, yeah. Yeah. And it was real performers as well as, like, latex hands, like, gloves just that they built so that it looked like 
more than it actually was. I think it was probably dozens of performers, not hundreds, but still. There was another movie Roman Polanski did. Hmm. did you, have you seen this? Mm-mm. There's a scene in his movie Repulsion hmm. where a woman walks down a hallway and there are these like disembodied hands reaching, f- okay. like trying to grab her as she walks mm-hmm. down the hall. Maybe. And yeah. that's super cool. When did that come out? And Roman Polanski, that would have been like probably 60s, 70s. Yeah. So it could have been that, that this was inspiring. But this, it just feels like such an Alice in Wonderland type thing. Yes, I had the same Alice in Wonderland thought. It's incredible. Alice in Wonderland is another of the books that's yeah. featured in Sarah's room at the very beginning. So she falls down the shaft of hands, as you say. To the oubliette. The oubliette. Oubliettes are so scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very scary. Well, where to begin? I, <laughs> where to begin? The thought of an oubliette. I hate it, personally. <laughs> hate the idea oh, it's, of it. it's the end of your life you're done exactly because an oubliette is a dungeon where the only entry is through an opening high in the ceiling that you can't access yourself yeah. like in the dungeon that's where you were put into this dungeon and that's it there are no windows and no doors, no doors. it is quite quite scary and i did ask myself <laughs> As I rewatched it, how many times are they going to say the word oubliette? How many times? <laughs> She's in the oubliette. But Hoggle, Hoggle describes it an as an oubliette, and he says that it's a place where you put people to forget about them. Yep. The word oubliette comes from the French word oublier, which means to forget. Interesting. So that is why it's called an oubliette. That makes sense. And apparently, as Jira says, there are many of them throughout the labyrinth. Mm-hmm. And he's upset that she's made it this far. But through her cunning and logic and learning and applying the knowledge that she's gaining, mm-hmm. she is making progress. I liked the insinuation there because he says she's in the oubliette and the goblins all laugh because they are ignorant naive, mm-hmm. unlearned. They're babes. They're babes. And they're like, ha she's lost forever. We won. But- Right. They think it's over. He says, no, she should have never made it this far. Like, this is all part of a game. Right. It's all part of a structure. It's engineered. He's engineered. It's engineered. It, it also implies- This is not the first time this has happened. Right. Exactly. Exactly. This is a game that Jareth seems to play regularly. He seems to play this with babysitters. (laughs) Right. And as I mentioned, it clicked for me for, you know, the first time this this go-around that all of the goblins in his care were at one time babies themselves. So it seems that for every goblin that he has was a failed attempt by a caregiver to retrieve the child, which is reminiscent of a folklore creature called the Erlking. I can't get it right. It's Dutch. It's all these different legends. Germanic. This creature would pursue children to their death and kill them. Hmm. Um, It didn't necessarily have the same lines as far as like gathering an army or like building an army for himself, but it's a king-like figure, a yeah. royal-ish figure that pursues and kills children. So a process killer, not a product killer. Exactly. <laughs> interesting. Yes. Very interesting. It is indeed. Hmm. So we interact with Jareth a few times as he's trying to get Hoggle to do his bidding for him. Again, I have to say it. We've said it over and over. Most critics of the film say it. His tights are tight. Uh, they are just tight. Them tights tight. <laughs> they tight. There's no way around it. And it is fake. It is fake. But still, it's just prominent in some of these scenes with Hoggle because of Hoggle's height and where the camera has to be. And yeah. yeah. This is one of those rare instances where um, a uh, oh no, <laughs> small gifts come in large packages. 
Right. It's rare, but it happens. So they also <laughs> they also touch on the the name jokes here. Yeah. Hogwarts Higgle. A whole lot. Yeah, she calls I, him I Hogwarts. I did think that was funny as a kid, but I wondered if DJ McHale was watching this. Because <laughs> <laughs> he gets the name wrong so many times. Because he does the name joke in everything he does. God, I know. And I wonder, maybe it's a tribute to something like this, because Labyrinth, they do it with Hoggle the whole the whole film. Maybe it was a tribute to like Monty Python type humor. I think it, oh, it definitely is that. I, I fully believe that. I think Monty Python humor kind of originated that idea. The wordplay is just so important. Um, and we talk about it sometimes that looping on itself humor, like Dan Palladino. Who's humor. on first, Dan right? Palladino is Amy Sherman Palladino's husband who wrote a lot of Gilmore Girls. And it's the who's on first yeah. Um, looping joke that you can't get out of. He does that a lot. They do that a lot. Yeah, I love that kind of humor. Yeah, and it, so it's good. impressive. But as, you know, they're they're talking, they're in this corridor, right? And Jareth unleashes a cleaner, which is the scary machine that's coming down the corridor. And it doesn't look very effective to me as a cleaner, unless maybe they just start talking yeah. about like cobwebs. Because it's just these spinning spikes. I think it just breaks up and clears all the clutter in the cavern. Whatever happens to be in there. I it guess. mutilates you. Yeah. There, there's a pretty funny, or I say funny, it's really not that funny. In the making of featurette, they are behind the scenes as they were shooting this. And Sarah and Hoggle are trying to push this panel in the wall yeah. and push that they, they do eventually make it. But in this take that they happen to be shooting behind the scenes, the cleaner is like approaching, approaching, approaching. And Sarah and Hoggle are pushing and pushing and nothing's happening. And the cleaner's getting closer and closer. And I personally, as I'm watching, I'm like, Oh no, it's going to hit them. Oh no. And then uh, you hear the director, you know, you hear Jim Henson like, cut, cut. Like they they kill it really fast. But just <laughs> as they cut, they get the wall to fall down. That's so funny. And it's like, it actually, like it scared me way more watching the stunt happen. Yeah, than because that's how people die on film sets. Exactly. <laughs> Ooh, scary. But, you know, it's probably made of like, you know, plastic and plaster and like. Right. Yeah, it probably real. wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't metal. It truly wasn't metal. Sharp. Maybe, I don't know. Metal. As Sarah is navigating this labyrinth, she's learning who she can and cannot trust. Right. And she's mostly realizing that she has to trust and rely on herself. Yeah. The creatures that she's meeting are equally confusing her and imparting nuggets of wisdom at the same time, including a gem from this wise man character that peters out into the square after they get out of the oubliette, the corridor. And he says to her, the way forward is sometimes the way back, which I really <laughs> liked. I like that scene because of the hat in the, the hat, back and forth. There's a hat that's talking. It's again, <laughs> that looping joke. It's the same thing. God, it's so funny. Same looping Monty Python humor. And another thing I, I want to point out about that is that in fairy, fae, lore, folk tale, things are often transactionary. Right. There isn't real relationship. There isn't real emotional bonding or connection. Mm -hmm. It is all transactions based on what's in it for me kind of thing. Yeah. And you have this happen where the wise man offers her this wisdom and then asks for something in return, which she gives him a ring of hers. Sounds a lot like the entertainment industry, am I right? <laughs> right. Sure does. Uh, it reminds me of being on Hollywood Boulevard as a high school kid and all these characters coming up to you and trying to take your picture, take a picture with you and then asking for money once you have the photo. It's just, yeah, it's that kind of thing. Transactionary, what's in it for me? I'm preying on you almost. Mm -hmm. And also we've met Ludo by this point. I kind of haven't been beat for beat, but when we meet Ludo, 
this big beastly monster. Yeah. He's giving major, major sloth vibes from the Goonies. Major sloth vibes. Was there a speaker to this costume? Like I think all the vocals sound like he's wearing a speaker in him, like he has a microphone in the costume. I don't know. I tried to read more about that costume. I talked about how much it weighs before, but like I tried to read about it. Something said that there was a camera in the horn and a monitor in the stomach. I don't know that that's factual. That sounds, that that sounds seems wrong. pretty advanced for, yeah, I, I feel like that's not quite right. We weren't there. We weren't even born yet. <laughs> we were not. So we do not know. What do we know? Mysteries of life. Nothing. Out of all the musical numbers in this film, <laughs> Chili Down is probably my least favorite. <laughs> oh, yeah? And some of these lyrics are rather puzzling. Why? Well, for, for what one reasons? Thing, Please expound. <laughs> for one thing, it's the only song of Bowie's that Bowie didn't sing. Yeah. But also, they seem the most threatening huh. to her physical safety yeah. to me of all the monsters. It's almost like they want to put a green ribbon around her neck and then Ooh. pull it so tight that her head comes off. Don't they? Seems a little bit like they want to pull their head off. Yes. There's some beheading discussion here, which yeah, apparently it's a little we can't bit get away from it. Disturbing. But this is a this is a pink elephants on parade. It is. Scene. Oh, totally, totally. Mm-hmm. It was filmed on a black cloth, basically. Like Clearly, green it's yeah. No, and they had to yeah. redo it, I think, because Jim Henson wasn't a fan of the way that it came out the first time. But the movement of these fiery guys was a really difficult thing to get get right, I guess, to get the vision that he had for it. Yeah. But the lyrics to me are also very interesting because it sounds like they're just like a bunch of minimalist stoners. But then they also have this like, we're gonna we're gonna pull your head off strange nefariousness about them. And they're also thrusting their hips around. They are gyrating. They are gyrating. They learned that That's from the Goblin King probably. They learned that from old Jareth. <laughs> uh, but yeah, chilly down. I, I will still listen to it every time. It's I a have disturbing the scene. But it is disturbing <laughs> on many levels. I like it because it's absurd. It is very much absurd. But as far as the movie goes, I can I can lose this scene. <laughs> right. Pretty much. I can lose all the musical numbers in this mm-hmm. movie. I like the movie. I Blasphemy. do. I love the movie. Blasphemy. I'm sorry. It would I'm sorry not to be everybody what it is. who's listening. It would not be what it is without the music. And I will You're probably I will stand right. By that. No, you're probably right. Mm. I'm just saying, that's what I would want. Mm. I don't know if we've ever disagreed this hardcore, but here we are. Look, we're still friends. It doesn't matter. No, we can still be friends. It's fine, but <laughs> damn. Agree to disagree. <laughs> we can disagree and still be friends. What, what that guy say during the I'm not the saying pandemic? we've never disagreed. I'm just saying this might be the most stark. <laughs> I mean, we've had some example. we've had some fights. Oh, we have. That's true. But I'm, this is, this, I'm taking offense. Let's have one right now. You want to fight right now on the air? <laughs> no. <laughs> Fine. Never. What's your opinion? Um, But I will tell you something else that offends me. Do you want to know? Yeah, tell me. The bog of eternal stench. Oh my God. The bog of eternal stench. More <laughs> like the bog of puckering butthole farts. <laughs> that is, yes. Um, <laughs> There's really not much more I could say about it other than that. And the peril of, like the idea to me as a kid, the idea that I could step one toe into that and smell for my entire life was just the worst thing I could think of. Nah, here, here's the logistics that no one thought about. You're wearing shoes. Is it the shoe that smells or you? It's the shoe. It's magic. It's contact. It's magic. You take the shoes off, you don't smell like the poo-poo. It's magic, though. So I feel like it could really go either way. This smell could haunt you. Hmm. I don't know. I do know that I don't like to watch it. I do know that I didn't like to watch it as a child. They look like buttholes. It did, and I think it was on purpose. 
And to be honest, after understanding what it what it took to like be in the Ludo suit, 75 pounds of this animal, yeah. I was just really impressed that they got the performances that they did navigating this. Of course, it wasn't really a bog, but sure. still to be like balancing on these stones. And that was real water. Exactly. It stressed me out as a filmmaker more than anything. Yeah. With all these expensive costumes. Which like, where's the, where's the eye holes? Mm-hmm. How can he see out of his eye holes the whole time? Stress me out, man. Uh, and also, we meet Sir Didymus here, who joins us on our journey. All these creatures that she's, this this band of merry men that she's bringing <laughs> along with her. And Didymus does not want them to cross the bridge. Yep. And again, very Monty Python. The play he, on words every he's time. He's not going to let them through. And they go on the looping joke until Sarah logics her way out of it. He says, I have to keep my vow. Sarah says, what exactly did you vow? And he said right. that no one would cross without my permission. And then there's a beat. And then Sarah says, may we have your permission? And he's like, oh, never thought of that. Um, Okay. <laughs> Let's them pass by. Calls to mind Scrappy-Doo. Yeah. Because he's always kind of trying to pick a fight. True. Even though he's so small. <laughs> he's such a small. He's real scrappy, for sure. Yeah. He annoys me, to be completely honest. But oh that's another story for another time. Yeah. Or just basically irrelevant because I'm about to get to my favorite part of this movie. Okay. So (laughs) as I introduce it like that, I have to tell you, (laughs) eventually Jareth coerces Hoggle into drugging Sarah with poisoned fruit, Mm -hmm. a la Snow White. Snow White. Um, We saw that in Sarah's room. I saw that book on her bookshelf. I had honestly forgotten that it involved drugging Sarah. That didn't, I didn't keep that thankfully, up up in Monoggin. Yeah. And so I tried as an adult not to let my mind go to more modern Hollywood examples of this kind of behavior. Right. However, I would recommend everybody go and watch the series We Need to Talk About Cosby because we do. Yeah. We have to. Uh, it was like in his comedy routines, he talked about everything that he did. There are clips in that show that parallel the victims with his routines. Oh, my hmm. God. Oh, my God. Heavy. Oh, my God. Heavy. Heavy. But... <laughs> We're in a magical realm and whatever. And this is also a common tactic in fairy tale. Like you said, Snow White. Yes. Um, fairies in general. Poison fruit is not an uncommon thing in these parts. Yeah. But this is some of the most overt fairy lore that yes. I recall from this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's everything from this point, from her getting drugged Eating all the, the way through her her whole dream that she has. I mean, you could even go to a biblical place with it and have yeah. this, this yeah. lore, this poetry, this ancient what well, all goes back to the forbidden fruit forbidden fruit every time so in her her sleep her drug-induced stasis whatever she's experiencing sarah imagines this masquerade fantasy this and is the fairy lore i'm talking this about. is yeah. beautiful masquerade ball we get one of my favorite it may be my favorite song i have a hard time because i oh, you know yeah? me you know me i'm a sucker for anything that's like wistful and sad and achy <laughs> i just had a hard time separating uh, the predatory nature right. of the grown man. I know. I had a hard time with it. I'm I'm here to help us all work through that collectively because we all know, I hope you know by this point, if you know me or you listen to this podcast, you should know that I am the or me. biggest, or you, I'm the biggest yeah. advocate for victims in situations like this. I don't condone it. I don't think it's cool. It is entirely wrong and not okay in every circumstance. I'm, that's a blanket statement. But I would like to help you and listener work through in light of what we know and how we feel and how our culture has taken advantage of women and girls for such a long time. Yep. I'm hopefully not engaging in apologetics for something that I shouldn't be, but from what I've read about this film this week, 
I feel like they were, in essence, turning this all on its head. Yeah. Because Sarah is technically in control the whole time, which we will yes. learn and explore as we continue. We're going to finish this out. We can only and... speak to the intent of the film and the filmmakers and the right. whole point of the story. Right. And while it feels uncomfortable culturally, Sarah is creating this in her mind yes. at the end of the day. And it's 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 challenging. It's a challenging topic. We've talked about that before on this this podcast, actually. Which is why I kind of like the movie a whole lot because mm-hmm. it, it really pushes this boundary. It does, of like, and it makes you think. You know, obviously, it's never okay to take advantage of a child. It's never okay to exploit a child, and a child is a child. Right. She's fourteen. She's sixteen. Whatever. She's a child. Of course. The power imbalance. We'll, we'll talk. We'll. <laughs> I'm, I'm really it. working myself up Let's into it. it. We will get into that as well because you can't have a relationship like this. The power imbalance is too great. There's never going to be an even playing field for a relationship. But what you can have is, like we all did at Sarah's age, a poster on your wall. Yeah. You can have a rock star, mm-hmm. a la David Bowie, a rock star <laughs> that you idolize or that you fantasize about or that you wish you could be with. Sure. You can have a crush on an actor that you see in films that you, in your own mind and in your own way, make that fantasy your own. Yeah. You can have a whole fantasy experience and you do at that age. Mm-hmm. I did. Everyone does. I did. That's how that's how you begin to explore sexuality as a human being. Yeah. Um, that's that's where it like starts. Oh yeah. It's so hard to to explain it because I want to make sure that I'm, you know, I, I want to convey it properly. But I do think that that's one of the reasons that I like this movie. I liked it as a kid as an and as an adult, now looking back at it, because it kind of gave a face to that idea. And it made it, it normalized it a little bit and made it mainstream because as we've discussed, I was very repressed. Yeah. This stuff was not talked about. You know, you could have a crush. We talked about having crushes or whatever, but yeah, no, no, no. it just wasn't, it wasn't normalized for me. No. And uh, it is a normal thing. <laughs> so that's something that I really appreciate about this film is that they, they took that leap and they said, okay, well, what does it look like inside of this girl's head? She's 16. Right. And right. she's learning and trying to figure out and- things that are attractive to her and why are they attractive to her and that's what we're seeing happen but it's such a simple scene there's no dialogue it's this song as the world falls down david bowie it's the romance of it yeah. but it's kind of you're you're learning how there are layers to this there's the layer of romance but it kind of gives way to a sexual thing as well yeah. and they're just yep. dancing in a ballroom <laughs> in a masquerade ball and all these creatures that have been developed by the same creature shop right the masquerade and mask are goblin-esque. Yes. Which is the first time I've ever seen that mm-hmm. specifically. I, it's, I think they're, the only They're typically time. of other themes, goblins never being one of them, which is very cool. I think so too. And I also think that they were trying to highlight the parts about sexuality and coming, in, coming of age, coming into that part of your life that are confusing. Mm-hmm. Because this dude is a problem. He's representing something that's in her way. He's representing a challenge for her. And yet she is mysteriously attracted to him Yeah, and kind of puts him in this role in her mind, whether it's him or the idea. I think it's all about an idea here, which is why ultimately I can get on board with it and be okay with it. Yeah. Well, she's also just, just eaten this fruit that's poisoned that made her completely forget about her entire adventure. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. she does not recall the baby with the power, Mm -hmm. the power of the voodoo. She doesn't remember... (laughs) Anything she's learned along the way, she's forgotten what she's looking yep. for 
All she knows is that she was in this miserable reality. Yes. And all of a sudden, she's in this mystical fairy world that is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. There's dancing. There's There's music. She's experiencing pleasure. pleasure, Whereas the first time she feels free Mm -hmm. and good about what's happening. And so she gives in a little bit, like Mm -hmm. we all do. And it's, I've read about this too. (laughs) just reading about human sexuality, but it's like the idea that it wasn't her fault. She can absolve herself of like guilt associated with it or that it's wrong or bad or weird because this is something she fell into as like natural as breathing kind of thing. Like it's, yeah, she's falling into it and it's not her fault. And I think that lesson alone would have changed a lot of things for me as a kid. Right. You know, as a young woman growing up, I think it would have, again, normalized what's happening because it's a reality that's happening that you can't get away from. Yeah. It's tough because she's also just living out a fantasy in her subconscious. Right. She's not actually at a masquerade. Right. You know, she's not actually in a labyrinth. Spoiler alert. He's not really there. (laughs) That's the important point to remember when you get to this point in the film and you get the ick. (laughs) When you you get the ick, you just know. It's not actually. It's not actually happening. And I think it's important to allow for that in art. This is something that I th- I think about sometimes because you have you kind of have to. You have to. I mentioned it in a previous episode, Spring Awakening. Right. It's a musical. Right. But you have to kind of allow for that those barriers to come down in art because that's what's going to help and normalize it for the average person watching. You know, like mm-hmm. we've always used art to explore these parts of ourselves that we don't understand. We use art to explore sex. We use art to explore death. Exactly. It's all metaphor. It's all allegory for something larger, something more realistic that's right. hard to explain. This is why art is made to begin exactly. with. It's, it's why we do this. It's why we have a podcast is because we can tap into this. And make sort of. sense of things that otherwise don't make sense. Because there's way more truth in fiction than there is in reality. Yes. And it's just, it's that's a harsh thing to come to terms Fiction with. Fiction is the lie we tell that tells the truth. Exactly. Or uh, Camus, who said that? I don't it's remember, something but like, yeah. It's something like that, yeah. Did you find in the goblin lore about how some say goblins can give you nightmares or dreams? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this not being real, this being a, a, a drug-induced fantasy, there's also that goblin lore to do with they say they can weave dreams, dreams. out of gossamer, which is mm-hmm. spider webs. Um, but in- gossamer can also be anything tenuous, a tenuous idea that you have that's kind also, of- Also, you're right, you're right. Mm-hmm. But put them into your ear so that you dr- you have a nightmare or a dream of some sort. They can make you dream something, which goes way back to like demon lore. Like because demonology. human beings didn't always understand sleep and dreaming. Right. <laughs> they had to create lore- to understand it. <laughs> and before they could, everything was filtered through this orthodox Christianity. Also, yeah. And all this stuff got warped before we were ever able to understand the universe or the human psyche. Scientifically, so, yeah. From a scientific standpoint. So I uh, I, I lob that back to you. I tip, <laughs> I tip my hat back to you. Take it away. Amen, sir. Good, Take it away. Good points and good thoughts. This is the di- this is the discourse I wanted when I mm. <laughs> decided to cover Labyrinth. He is the Goblin King, my friends. Mm. He knows what he's doing. He says, you're no match for me. Early, but she, yeah. you're no match for me. But That's true. We find out she but is. But she is the arbiter of this world and this dream. She is the ultimate match, truly, for him. 
here we go. So when she wakes up from the masquerade, she wakes up in a junkyard. A junkyard. Junk. Just as far as the eye can see. But if she was just in the forest, how'd she get in the junkyard? How did she get there? And there's this goblin there, the junk lady, that has recreated her bedroom from home. Yep. So she goes into her bedroom and realizes, oh no, it was all a dream. I've seen this said as one of the most unsettling parts of this movie. This is the most disturbing scene for me in this movie. Same. This is where I thought it was going to get real, don't hug me, I'm scared. Mm -hmm. It's really really dark and really messed up where you think you're safe for a second and then everything gets so twisted. Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to get way darker than it actually did. I'm having like a weird subconscious from the depth of my brain thought bubbling up as you say that. Yeah. There was like an episode of Rugrats or something. Yeah. I feel like it was Rugrats. It's in that style in my mind. Like Tommy thought that he was he had found his mom and he was safe, you know, and he like yeah. came up to her and like touched her or whatever to turn around and she turned around and it wasn't his mom at all. It was like a whole different face. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. the way that that made me feel as a little little kid, just any anything where you you let your guard down, you have that moment of I'm safe, I'm OK. And it turns out not to be true. Yeah, that's a trope that happens. But yeah. man, oh, man, they did it. <laughs> they did it to it in Labyrinth. It also hurt and scared me, just the way that this goblin was approaching her belongings. You know, all these things that she clearly cared about so much. In in the beginning, you know, the reason that she gets upset, or one of the reasons that she's upset in the introduction, is that her bear Lancelot is missing. Lancelot, right. And she goes into Toby's room, and it's in to- on the floor in Toby's room, and she's upset that Toby's trying to take it from her. You know, she, she's very possessive. Somebody's been in my room. I hate exactly. that. <laughs> I hate so that. She's very, very possessive of her things because she is carefully surrounding herself with these things that make her feel safe. I get that. I know you do. I knew that this would hit you. If I found something was misplaced in my house, which I do on occasion. Sure. And I often joke, huh, it was the goblin. Right. It kind of frustrates me. And that's why I don't have house parties because I'm like, don't touch my stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like it either. And it's not even, I'm not a materialistic person. But there's something about the sacredness of like, this is my space. This is where I yeah. put things and I don't like it to be tampered with. I like what I have. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. To <laughs> it is hard to explain. And that's kind of where we land in this because so Sarah has, she's got this amnesia sort of thing going on. She's forgotten her mission. She's forgotten Toby. She's forgotten where she is, but she's, there's that tug in her, you know, we all know that where you know you're forgetting something, but you don't know what it is. Right. There's that tug in her mind. Yeah. And as she's in this room, you know, the junk lady's keeping all her stuff. Oh, there's this that you love. And there's this. And remember how you love this? It was a whirlwind. It's so interesting on multiple levels here because some people have pointed out that this moment also, like you have this tug, this reminder, like you need to grow up. You need to get out of here. You got something else going on. There's something that's that's hammering away at your consciousness. Yeah. But also this moment represents the danger of staying stagnant and you're wrapped up in your room and your stuff and your fantasies and you're forgetting the lessons that you're learning, the friends that you're making, the responsibilities that you have. You're just hurting my feelings now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, same. I, I'm preaching <laughs> to the choir hey, because it is- This is where I feel safest. <laughs> this is how depression feels. This is depression. That's another reason why it hurts us so much. Yeah. This is how depression feels and you put yourself in that place where you're safe. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's kind of deceptive. Your comfort zone will kill you. Right. That's what they all say. And that's it. There's this deceptive inkling that staying in this room means being safe. But it's And as tempting as it is to do that, it's not growth. Mm -hmm. And it's all a farce. Yeah. 
and that's what Sarah realizes. She breaks the spell, so to speak, and remembers Toby, and it all falls away from that point. She says it's mm-hmm. all junk because she realizes this isn't what is actually important. And that's something that we all have to do growing up with our toy, you know, with yeah. in that very um, literal sense. Yeah, yeah, We all have to do this with the toys, the things that we grew up with. <laughs> I had an, a note here. I was going to ask if there's anything that you have from your childhood, like an item, like physical item that you have that you like can't let go of or don't want to. Because oh, it is such a weird thing. I have so many things in my house. They're not they're not on display necessarily. I don't have like a blanket or a stuffed animal that like mm-hmm. still lives with me. But I have things in boxes or on in my closets or on you know shelves you or something. You would never let go of. that. I never want to let go of because yeah. they've been with me for as long as I remember. Exactly. I know how to find them. You can always go back to them. If you need them. Of course, if I need them. Because Mm. sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes you do. For no reason at all. Hey. Okay, 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 okay. So. (laughs) I will will also say before we leave the scene, Mm -hmm. I really, really appreciated the callback to Lancelot. Yeah. Because it was this moment that led her from her room to the baby's room. And also, how do we explain Lancelot going missing in the first place? It was a goblin. I think it was the goblin king. Had to be. Leading her to the room where he would cry. Which is a very, very goblin, uh, what's the word? Canon. It's very canon in that world. Exactly. Instigating trouble. But it's like, I, I appreciate that it wasn't just, oh, cool, we used the bear, move on. Mm-mm. They brought the bear back later mm-hmm. as a reference point exactly. for her to, Grow. It was it was meant to be trickery. You think you lost something. Here it is. Okay, sure, sure, thanks. Oh, shoot. Mm -hmm. It looks like this, but it's not this. Oh, freak. It was my little brother. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she gets that. I really appreciated the callback to something that happened, you know, 45 minutes ago or Mm -hmm. an hour ago. That was nice. Man, this scene. That's just good writing. All this. This this is when I really got into it this week and dug into the research. And because it it hits harder (laughs) for me, it has hit me harder this week than it ever did when I was little. I I knew it's good. When I was little, I felt the emotions. Now I know why I was feeling them. Yeah. And yeah. It's heavy. Again, we keep saying when you're a kid, you don't know why these things make you feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. You don't know why. Because when you're a kid, all you have is feeling, an abundance of emotion, but you don't have the logic yet. Right. You don't have the reason. Mm-mm. You don't have the language. So after we overcome some combat, which was apparently really difficult to create, they had a lot of puppets, a lot of moving pieces. And Henson said that they went out of their way to avoid it being gory, bloody. They didn't want anything like that. And I appreciate that. To go out of your way, though, all you have to do is not add not a bunch of blood. Just yeah. the idea that, you know, a lot of combat scenes in the 80s were all about That's that. True. And they That's were true. like, no, not going not gonna to do this. So Sarah leaves her friends outside the castle. And she tells them that she needs to do this alone. But she'll call them if she needs them. Yeah. And this is where we walk into the castle. And the, one of the more famous scenes from the film, you see, see it, you know, in the promo and stuff like that, is this upside down, it's this Escher sort of staircase. The stairs are not going the right way. Don't gloss over Escher. <laughs> Don't gloss over that. It's pretty great. So it's an it's an art artist and mm-hmm. very famous painting of stairs that are not correct, <laughs> but it, you can't figure out why they aren't correct. It's some, it's it's like a um optical illusion. Yeah, the painting is called relativity. Yeah, relativity. 
it is meant to make you sit and look at it and try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Just as all these other things that she's experiencing, she's supposed to puzzle through them on her own. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. Yeah. And she's gaining these skills that she's going to need. And there's another bit of pop culture reference to this painting. Yeah. Something that's near and dear to both of us, the Haunted Mansion. Oh, yeah. I almost said that. <laughs> the Disney ride attraction. They have the same, they have upside down stairs and ghosts on the stairs. Yeah. It is the Escher relativity painting. Yeah. We, we have gotta to reference say it. it. Yeah, we don't have a choice. Because. We gotta say it. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't have a choice. Because we are us. But yeah, that scene's incredible because they really use it to their advantage. It is amazing. The way that they had to build it, the practical effects behind it, the harnesses that they were putting David Bowie in, the camera angles that they were getting, the way they had to flip the camera and. Wow. They had to fl- flip him. Like he was in a harness walking up from the bottom of the stairs. That was all practical. That's wild. It's practical. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Um, That's way too the cool. The making of a featurette. Go watch it. It's crazy. I will. Also, we're getting at the same time this song, another really great Bowie song, uh, Within You. Very Phantom of the Opera. It is quite Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. But the lyrics here do sort of begin to pull back the curtain on what's happening. Yeah. Because while it does have this romantic sexual edge as they're as the two characters are kind of facing off with each other. Yeah. It's called Within You. Right. It's all about what's happening inside Sarah and her understanding of what's going on. Wink wink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they have this final confrontation. And Sarah begins to recite her speech from the beginning of the film. Yep. This is the play that she was rehearsing for. <laughs> and it's almost like she was, this was meaning to symbolize the way that we play at adulthood as children or the way that we practice for a role that we're stepping into. I talk in the mirror all the time. <laughs> and this time, Sarah remembers the final words, which are hugely important. Yep. And it was somewhat lost on me as, you know, a four-year-old. Sure. But her final words, her right words... You have no power over me. That's the moment when everything shifts because she recognizes and accepts her own autonomy. And that honestly might be the biggest hallmark of growing up, period, for anyone and everyone. Yep. This this idea that you are not a victim of your circumstances. You are not a product of your circumstances. You have experiences, but at the end of the day, you are an autonomous human being. And accepting that, you know, is a huge step to growing up as a person. Mm-hmm. And also at this point, she's rejecting this influence of Jareth, this evil, or this advance of an older male. This handsome, Whatever evil. personification that you put on it. I'm not saying this that older men are debonair. evil, but <laughs> they can be. Um, this toxic love. <laughs> yeah. And she wins the fight by deciding that she exists autonomously and she's a product of her own decisions and not happenstance. And I think that's a little bit of feminism finding its way through because throughout the film, the story is driven by Sarah's decisions. Ultimately, she's deciding which way to go. She's deciding who to trust. And it's her decisions and no one else's that got her into the situation in the first place by wishing Toby away. Right. So with this realization, this acceptance, she finds herself back in her house. It's just past midnight, so almost no time has passed. She has Lancelot, her bear, and she passes him on to Toby, which is, again, this big symbol of her letting go, growing up. Very symbolic, yeah. She doesn't need him anymore. You know, she knows Toby needs him now, and she doesn't. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) as an adult, the ending scene where all of her fictional friends say goodbye in the mirror, (laughs) 
um, so really got to me. <laughs> I know. It, it yeah. really did. They So she's in her room. She's looking in the mirror where she yeah. was sitting at the beginning of the film. And she sees her friends appear. You know, there's Ludo and Didymus and Hoggle. Yeah. And she tells them, <laughs> as you said earlier. Why, but every now and again in my life, for no reason at all, I need you. All of you. God. You know what I, I wrote down? Uh-huh. Her poignant talk through the mirror. I feel that shit. <laughs> I feel that shit too. Big time. Deeply. Deeply, I feel that. It hurts. It hurts. It, it hurts. In a way that's yeah. hard to put into words. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't hurt me like that as a kid because I was like, yeah. Because you didn't know what I the didn't meaning know it of loss was. Exactly. I couldn't it couldn't <laughs> have hurt me. You didn't know what growing up meant Mm-mm. then. Nope. But my God. My God. <laughs> Now we do. Mm. And it was apparently originally supposed to end on that poignant note, <laughs> but they added this celebration. The big party scene. There's a party scene. She, she you know, yeah. says that she'll call on them if she needs them. And they end up partying to David Bowie Underground, which is the title track as well. For any reason at all. And the reason that happened is because Hinton liked to leave movies on a high note when he would leave the theater. That was a big thing for him. He didn't want to leave being sad which i don't mind personally i think that was the right but i do call. think yes for this film no if oh my god if it had ended with her just be, with them appearing and disappearing yeah and they just weren't there we'd be having a different conversation no i'd be a different person tonight i know me too i think it was important very important but you know it's just heavy i'm sitting here with like hardly able to say words because it's just so so heavy. heavy And as I continued to promise throughout this, I want to point out now, to tie it all together, as we've kind of said at this point, the whole story is like a dream concocted from all of Sarah's surroundings. Right. So there's a list on IMDb. Here we go. But the sources of all of the characters can be seen in Sarah's room at the beginning of the movie. Yep. So she has a stuffed animal that looks like Sir Didymus. Yep. There's a doll that looks like Ludo. Oh, yeah. Where the wild things are. All the books that we've talked about throughout. Right. There's a doll that looks like the fiery guy. There are bookends with goblins, goblins. that resemble Hoggle. Mm-hmm. There is a figurine of a character that looks like Jareth on yep. her desk. A much more goblin-esque Goblin King. True. The dress that she wears in the ballroom is the same as the doll in her music box. I, did, I missed that. Wow. The wooden maze game on her dresser, a labyrinth. I noticed the labyrinth. That's Yeah. That's a dead giveaway. I looked that up. I was trying to see if there was a specific 80s or like 70s, 80s game, and I couldn't find one. I had one like that. A marble. You put a marble in it. A marble, and you, and you have to like move the it. the handles to yeah. get it through the maze. Yeah. I had one like that. Yeah. And there's also a copy of the M.C. Escher Relativity in her room. The poster on the wall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a cat's poster. And there was there a black is. cat in one of the scenes. Like cats, like the play. The cat's play poster. Yes. Yeah. Also reminiscent of the tights, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> also the tights. Maybe it oh came from God. cats. <laughs> You're right. She really just oh put it all, God. like we all do. You have elements from your day, your surroundings. <laughs> the look on your face before you said tights was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was like. <laughs> I really wanted to get you. <laughs> you sandbagging mother. Always, always. God, it's so funny. Um, but the, it's, the it's just, it's amazing when you watch it back on, you know, when you grow up and you notice we, we do this as humans. You, yeah. you build a dream from your reality. And that's right. exactly what Sarah did. Do we want to age her a little bit with the uh, scrapbook of her mother's? Okay. 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 Am I getting ahead of you? No, no. You're, you're right on track. I thought so. Another huge 
and sometimes very overlooked element of Sarah's childhood room is the scrapbook that we see that has newspaper clippings, yep. which seem to depict Sarah's mother, who is an actress, yeah. who is with a man who resembles David Bowie. Yeah. And there is some supplemental material, like a novelization of the film. And in the novelization, they explain that this man is a fellow actor and Sarah's mother left her family for this man. Yeah. So not only does this give us more insight into why this guy is a villain in Sarah's mind, but it also gives us more background on how she probably misses her mom. She may have been forced to live with her dad at a time when she really could have benefited from having a female influence and doesn't want it from her stepmom or somebody that she doesn't trust. Right. And maybe that lack of trust is part of what caused her to retreat from the adolescence that is barreling toward her as it does everyone. Right. And back into her fantasy world. She doesn't ready. She's not ready to grow up. She doesn't want to grow up because look what that leads to. I mean, but <laughs> in it, her experience, but it's this complicated blending very of the reluctance to grow up versus the idolization of her of mother. Her mother and her mother is an actress. Yes. Who is so successful in her own right that there are newspaper, newspaper clippings articles. of mm -hmm. her and her romance with this other. And it's actor. all. It's not just a scrapbook. This is this is on her mirror. Like it says, it's got mom with hearts drawn. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's romanticizing her mother's experience. Mm -hmm. As much as it has practically adult. affected her day to day, exactly. Yep. She's romanticizing the experience that her mom had. It's why she resents her stepmother, but it's also why she has villainized the man her mm -hmm. mother left her family for. But also- It's, it's a very complicated mix. It is. But also is attracted to him and to it, to the idea of a romantic- yeah, affair. It's an affair. Uh, it, it's mm. it's so it's so much <laughs> when you when you know. I don't know. It's it's just a lot. It's the most romantic thing in her like that's happened in her life. Right. But it also really profoundly affected her daily life. It's like absolutely both. Absolutely, because the mother who was there is the evil stepmother mm. because she knows fairy tales. Mm -hmm. so the the well. stepmother even says that. Yeah. Like everything I say, it doesn't matter what I say. She treats me like a wicked stepmother. Mm -hmm. Now we know why, kids. Now we know why. And that was part of what I read into the importance of her remembering that line of dialogue mm -hmm. at the end would be something to do with her thinking her mother is this very successful actress. Actress. And her trying to be this actress who can remember her lines yes. because- Because that's what her mom does. Yeah. And I feel like she's trying to overcome she's this living, personal- It's it's so many layers. Yeah. Because she's living this fantasy to be like her mom, yep. which is to grow up. Exactly. But she's also doesn't want to grow up because it's safer to be in her fantasy. Exactly. But she can't help it. So it's all blending in her mind because she can't help but have these feelings and urges and stuff <laughs> that she's dealing with. Yeah. But even in her own complex fantasy world that she's created to escape her own reality, she can't remember her lines. Yeah. So she feels this complex emotion on multiple levels because she can't even overcome her own personal she's boundaries. She's worried she's not ready. She or thinks she she's not good enough. Mm -hmm. Which I felt that way. Holy cow. As a teenager, absolutely. I get that now. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Uh, imposter syndrome? Hello. I'm not an adult. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean I'm 31? 30 years old. What are you talking about? Why do I always fall for it? Why do I always fall for it? <laughs> Every time. I got it. Oh, man. So you have beautifully summed up a lot of the things that I have found in my revisiting of this film. Thank you so much. Uh, that's why I'm here. Before we conclude, 
I would like to go into a couple of like deleted scenes or ideas that I thought were really cool that I just hadn't heard before, whether it came from other drafts or novelization or whatever. No, I want to hear all about these. Okay. So the early script has Jareth enter Sarah's house. He's like disguised in the guise of an author of the play that she's supposed to perform in and she's rehearsing for. Yeah. So that's how he comes to her at first. It's sort of like a Dickens, like Dickensian sort of <laughs> I'm visiting you as the author of the work that you're uh-huh. romanticizing. Sounds like very invite me and I'm a vampire. Right. And in that draft, Jareth is a lot more of a villain. I think I talked about that last time. But Sarah in that draft doesn't wish that her brother would be taken away. Jareth snatches him against Sarah's will. Oh, I see. That doesn't work. Also in that draft, in that final confrontation, Jareth tells Sarah that he would much rather have a queen than a little goblin prince. Yikes. So it's a lot more overt that he's trying to like lure her into his world. The baby was the bait. Right. Got it. And in that script, Sarah kicks Jareth, is disgusted with him and kicks him. And in his package, that transforms him into a sniveling little powerless little goblin guy. Oh, wait, by kicking him? By kicking him. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. I can see why they changed it. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Many reasons. I like the uh, Count Olaf. I come to visit you. I'm the author mm-hmm. of the of the play you love. Let me yeah, steal your little brother. I like that. I don't like the kicking. Right. Because he just becomes a nothing. Yeah. Her words are more powerful than any kick or punch. I think that was the that was the right way to go. The pen is mightier than the sword. Amen. The ballroom scene in that draft and apparently in the novelization, which I haven't read. Um, but there's more dialogue between Jareth and Sarah in that ballroom. Uh-huh. And apparently as part of this, the dancers and everybody, it's a lot more overtly sexualized. Yeah. They gave an echo of it in the movie. It's only there if you want to see it, really. Yeah, no, totally. Almost. Like you kind of have to, you have to be reading the subtext or reading between the lines to get I did. there. I did. Um, I did as well. But apparently in other versions, it was more overt. Yeah. Last thing, the novelization clarifies and expounds on the fact that all of the individuals inside the labyrinth are on a metaphorical island of their own. And this goblin king has prohibited any kind of emotional relationship. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about fairy interactions often being really transactional. Yeah. Because for every transaction, there has to be a price. And so this is why she has to go through all these tests and riddles. There's always a right, yeah. obstacle and there's an exchange for all the information from Hoggle or the wise man or whomever. It's like a fairy lore right. convention. Because there's the exchange of his jewelry and her giving him something. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. back and forth with to do with that. And that that's yeah. interesting because the witchcraft and magic, there's the age old theory and belief that magic always takes more than it gives. True. So you have to be prepared to pay to the piper mm-hmm. in, in, piper, in a sense the price. to get what you want out of this transaction. Mm-hmm. It's always transactional exactly, because energy can't be created or destroyed. <laughs> it's just yep. manipulated in exchange for something else. Yep. So yeah, that's some some other insight to the, the making of. And it makes sense to me now why there were so many drafts and iterations of the script, totally. 25 or whatever I said, because- you could take it in whatever direction you wanted to. And with, with that many people applying their own experiences to it, yeah, it can go off the rails really quickly. But I really like where they landed, personally. I feel like there was only one way this was going to work. Yeah. And I think that they made it work. They made it work. Yep. Yeah. To kind of wrap it up, while not outright terrifying, and who would expect that from the creator of The Muppets? Right. I still think Labyrinth and a lot of its themes fit really well into our pretty dark classification. For sure. I think it's one of the best fitting things that I've covered because 
There's this glittery monochrome 80s place that my mind goes, all the nostalgia that I have personally with it and the place that, you know, it was created, the time in which it was created, but also the lessons and the themes that it teaches. And some of them may be more forward thinking than than other things that we've discussed. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting for me to consider the 70s and 80s ideals of that time for women And the inevitable, there's like bits and pieces of misogyny that are really hard to tease out. Yeah. Because you're teaching this female teenage protagonist to use her wits and compassion and social skills rather than violence, which I don't mind, but it is still suggestive of this feminine conditioning in society and the ways that women are taught to approach the world. Yeah. But she's successful. (laughs) So therefore, it's empowering but I kind of go back and forth on it because I'm like, is it rewarding this behavior that reinforces misogyny or is it feminist and empowering of a female character because it's all based on her decisions like I was talking about? And Jareth and Hoggle do infantilize her and they're constantly underestimating her and undercutting her and trying to explain to her how it is and she doesn't understand. Right. And, and this behavior in the film is painted, even if only lightly, as villainous. It's not the way to be. Right. So right. that's a good thing. And even Hoggle <laughs> so says- So for every I point, mean, there's a counterpoint. Hoggle's this complex two-faced character, like you said, because even mm-hmm. he'll, he will feel shame, but he'll say, I don't feel shame because I'm a coward. I did what I did because that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And it's only when she's like, no, Hoggle, like, I forgive you for what you did. Mm-hmm. We're friends. He's like, oh, really? Right. I've never been shown could, this level of exactly. kindness before. The fact that a relationship could go to that place is foreign to him. Yeah, it's wild. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to say because it's like, do you have a female who's this violent brute force character who's yeah. female? Or do you have a male character who uses his wits and his smarts yeah. to get done what needs to get done? It's like, is that feminist? Right. Or or like, it, what is feminist at this point? All of it really is kind of like, it can go whatever way you need it to go. Yeah. I think that it was intended to be empowering and I'd like to take it I think it, it was well way. intended. I, I really do. <laughs> right. I, I do. I think it was well intended. And I think that you can't say the same of other films at this time. Not all of them. Not all Not, not all of them. There are the exceptions. But I, I mean, right. even, even with Bowie as a male influence on this story, as this whole film, I think even he, being who he was would have lent a little bit of insight into certain mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Because even he wouldn't have done something that was too- Yeah, he said that in too, all the interviews. He was he had a moral compass, so to speak, with some of it. Yeah, exactly. One that seemed to be pretty well-tuned. <laughs> I think he knew what he was doing. Yeah. But I think he was also, again, looking to the future, knowing what this would mean for future generations. Because, because he could he see. He could see the exactly. future. Exactly what it should look like or what it would look like in the future. I think totally. he was, I think he had a uh, long-term vision. Long-term vision. Totally true. I think so anyway. Emphasis on long. It's also worth noting that in this final confrontation, Sarah kind of breaks the spell that she has in this fantasy. We've all done it. We've all fantasized about somebody that's not good for us. That's not a good <laughs> idea. That's not yeah, a safe every relationship uh, place, but it's had. safe in your head, but it's not safe in life or it's not a good idea. It's not, right. it's not going to turn right. out well. And she kind of pops the bubble for herself because she recognizes that this relationship isn't real. And not only is it not real, but it never could be real. Right. Like I was saying, this power dynamic is never going to be a successful relationship. And it can't be. Never. Um, I've learned a lot about that in recent years. Just the way that in a relationship, if there's this unfair power balance, you can't build a foundation of a relationship because there's always 
it's always an exchange. Always. And you can't outsmart these dynamics in some circumstances. Hmm. Interesting. And again, the fact that they used a female protagonist at all is pretty great and uncommon for the time. Yeah. And I have to give them credit for that because I don't have a lot of things I can look at that depict a female character like this. Mm-hmm. It is rare. So overall, I've gained a whole new appreciation <laughs> for this movie as an adult. And while it is campy and silly at times, I absolutely resonate with the way that Sarah is kind of balancing in a place between the fantasies that she's stringing together and the realities and responsibilities that she's growing up into. Yeah. Including <laughs> life's not fair. Getting hit with that real hard, as we all yeah, do at that age. Yeah, she learns that lesson, yeah. She learns that lesson, as we do. Life's but she's also fair. learning that she's capable and able. She's learning that nobody is going to save her at the end of the day. Mm. She has to save herself. And even if saving herself by building the right kinds of relationships, it's still kind of an act of saving herself because she knows who she should and shouldn't trust. Because she she's learns. not meeting female characters along the way. No, not really. They're all male. They're all men. And she's Which learning is, that she can't trust a one of them. <laughs> right. Right? It's so... Only the junk lady. She's the the, oh, the lone and woman. And she was... Well, yeah. Yeah. But she was... Cl- yeah, whatever. You're right. <laughs> she was female. But you're right. No, you're, that's a really good point, too, is that she's learning all of this from men. So... Yeah. And then... But, that, but she had to, because that's the life that she ended up in, because her mom left. And mm-hmm. to top it all off, she also has this whole idea or this whole awakening oh hey like sex exists <laughs> and it's kind of yeah. thrust upon her no pun intended <laughs> in this safe mm-hmm. way where she can test her boundaries and learn i had some expectations but that package is too big my friend. it is too, too that's big. too much and i have to say creating fiction to cope like we've gone through some in this episode we've talked about a good bit and we talk about all the time Yep. It reminds me of Shirley Jackson mm. in The Haunting of Hill House. Shirley Jackson says, yep. no living organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. <sighs> Even Larks and Katie dids are supposed by some to dream. Yep. We have to dream to cope. <laughs> many of us do anyway. God bless you, Shirley Jackson. And again, like many of the subjects that we discuss, Sarah is maybe even overtly using these fantasies and depictions of the world. Her fiction the literal fiction, the books on her bookshelf, the things she surrounds herself with to try to make sense of life just the way Jim Henson did and David Bowie did in their adolescence especially and just the way that you and I do all the time. Big yep. Two big yeps coming up. (laughs) And that is The Labyrinth. That's The Labyrinth, huh? That's it. Wow, what a film. What a film. What a night. What artists (sighs) they were. Artists. Did they even, did they know really what they were doing? Did they know that, that, all these years later. <laughs> if they knew what we they were doing, <laughs> they didn't when it was a flop. <laughs> right. That poor Jim Henson, I wish. That's so again, unfortunate. As in so many cases, I think Jonathan Larson. Which is crazy to me because he had insane success with yeah. everything he'd done so far. Muppet, Muppet, Muppet. And then, and then to bring in David Bowie. Yeah. Who was on top of the world at the time. Mm-hmm. And for this to just... Yeah. Flop? It was. It, he never really recovered from that. It makes no sense to me. And me neither. I, I'm not even staunchly for Bowie being in this movie, but it makes no sense to <laughs> I me. I am. If anybody was curious. That it wasn't a success. <laughs> like, of all the movies, this should have been the one. Yeah. But whatever. Yeah. Either way, it's a cult classic that people still love. Agreed. Right. And that's, I wish that he could know that. 
I wish that he could know that. It's an incredible movie. It's it's just, you know. Here, here. Well done. The puppetry was incredible. Yeah. Man, um, man. Very impressive. I can't believe what, what went into it. I mean, it's just unreal. Practical effects. But, wow, that's the labyrinth. That's the labyrinth. Hell of some research. Good job. Thanks. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, we appreciate you as always. And we'll be back soon. As always. With some more spooky shit. <laughs> some more spooky shit. So in the meantime, follow us on social media. Yeah, go leave a review or a comment or something. We like to read those. And they help us more than you think because it really helps us get into more people's feeds. Honestly, it is more than you, you think it would, for sure. But yeah, we'll catch you next time. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Have fun with your puppets and your packages, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So, until next time, sweet dreams, everyone. Remind me of a man. Remind you all.